Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And if you'll please stand in body or in spirit as I, we hear the words of the scripture. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we begin our message time this morning, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we pause for a message from you at this time in our service, and we know that that can't happen without your Spirit. So my prayer is that you would be in my thoughts and words and be in the hearts and minds and ears of those who would hear such that your word is conveyed this morning. Hide each of us within the shadow of the cross so that only your glory is seen. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A very fictional account, hear me say fictional, people tend to blur myth and mystery and truth sometimes, particularly in matters of religion and faith, a very fictional search for the chalice of Jesus, the cup purportedly used by Jesus at the event we call the Last Supper, and we often call this thing the Holy Grail, is described in among my favorite adventure movies of all time. It's called The Final Crusade. It's a 1989 film, so I'm dating myself a little bit. Uh, it's from the Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones family of movies. And whether or not you've seen it is not particularly relevant this morning. The point for the message is very easy to grasp, and I'm going to share that with you here in just a moment. Antiquities hunter extraordinaire Indiana Jones has a father who is a Holy Grail lore expert. He's, the senior Jones has this book. It's like a diary, and it's full of maps and notes, and comments, and historical observations, and interviews with people, and all kinds of stuff. And he's using this all his adult life to search for the grail. And he wants to find it simply for the joy and challenge of finding it, and to learn what he can from it. But the bad guys 
want to beat them to it because they have heard this rumor that whoever drinks from it attains immortal life, earthly life. And so, as you can envision in a movie like that, circumstances pit the good guys and the bad guys, in this case, Nazi sympathizers, in a race for the grail. So, in the movie's climactic scene, and this is the part I want you to connect with a little bit if you can, Indiana Jones gets to the cave bearing the chalice first. He beats the Nazis to it. And the entrance to the cave is guarded by a 700-year-old knight, a Templar of sorts. And the knight has this long, long life because he's been sipping from the grail all this time. And he allows Indiana Jones into the cave. And in no case could he have physically restrained Indiana Jones because you're thinking, well, he's 700 years old, but the visual image that goes with that is apt. He's very frail and weak. He's still with us, but he's frail and weak. But Indiana Jones goes into the cave and he's immediately confronted by the ultimate challenge to his knowledge and faith and intentions. Because right there in front of him in the cave, hewn right into the wall, is this huge shelf. And there's dozens and dozens of chalices and cups and mugs there. All different sizes and shapes and designs and adornments. And the Templar says... In the fiction of the story now, a traveler can drink from only one cup. To drink from any cup that is not the grail will cause instant, painful, and tormenting death. To drink from the true grail generates earthly immortality. And so, Indiana Jones pauses as he's considering all these grails and all he knows about it. And he's trying to think, okay, which is the one that I need here to solve the problem that's at hand? And then the Nazis arrive. And they come busting into the cave and they're in a big hurry and their leader spies this chalice that is among the tallest there and it is perfectly formed gold. And it's inlaid with jewels all around it. And it's smooth and it looks all the world like it's been machined at a weapons factory. And it's just beautiful. And he's overwhelmed. He says, that's the cup of someone who would call himself a king. And he grabs the cup and he dips it in the cistern and he takes a big sip and he instantly dies a horrible and gruesome death. And the 700-year-old Templar, completely nonplussed by the scene, changes his gaze from what's been happening to Indiana Jones, and he says with a perfectly straight face, he chose poorly. So, the point is, our parable today is about choice as well. And although it may not have seemed so in that reading, I think it's the same serious choice that's before us. It's a choice to... Decide what to do about the invitation of grace to join the fellowship of the kingdom of God. So to appreciate the parable just a little bit, I want to offer some historical context. What I'm about to do is extremely condensed form. I'm going to take the entire Old Testament and put it into three or four sentences for you. So don't nod off for this part because you're going to miss a lot. Okay, so here goes. God originally established the Hebrew people as an example to the world of how to know and relate to the one true God. And to these same Hebrew people, He would eventually send 
Messiah, through whom God could be fully known and through whom the kingdom of God would be established on earth. But when Messiah actually arrived, these same Hebrew people, many of them, rejected Messiah because his message was so unusual and so unexpected. And because, perhaps from the leader's point of view, those that had been most religiously trained and educated and rejecting him, they were fearful of and rejecting of his message being uh, rocking the boat, tradition wise. It compromised their authority and their influence with the people. So, riling up some of the people to help them, egging them along a little bit, they tried what they could to discredit this Messiah person, and eventually they crucified him. And so that's what Jesus means here when he says the first wave of invitations were rejected by people that were not worthy. That's what that means. These people rejected him outright for the wrong reasons. They were unworthy of the cause. So, in the next wave of invitations that goes out, hinted at in the Gospels and outright explained in cases in Acts of the Apostles and in several of the letters of Paul, the servants go out and they invite everybody this time, Jew and Gentile, to join in this kingdom celebration. And the text tells us in the parable now that the king's done waiting. It's time to decide. The decorations are up. The meat is cooked. The celebration is at hand. And it's decision time. Are you in or are you out? And so, the text goes on to tell us that, that some of these invitees poorly prioritize, let's say, the choices that they make. The text tells us they chose farm chores and family business over the commitment to attend this celebration. Choosing good things, perhaps, displacing the best things. That's just like warnings you hear for your individual lives, that, that good things are okay and should be pursued, but never in the case that they displace the best things. So, we do that all the time too, I think. I know I do. I suspect in your best moments of self-inspection, you would agree that you do it occasionally too. Why do we hesitate? Why do we prioritize poorly and relegate our worship and our service and our prayer time and study time to the dregs of free time? Why do we do that? Well, if I knew the answer to that, I could probably apply for the position of God, but it happens that that's not an open position, so you just get speculation from me right now. But I think certainly we have to suppose that control is an issue. Each of us, whether outwardly or just a little bit inwardly, resent the idea that someone else can put things on our schedule. The mere suggestion that you need to study more or you need to do more of this is most often met with the instant resistance of just because you suggested it, I'm not going to do it. Control issues. I think we have issues with not understanding the alternatives properly. We have free will. And it's okay to say, well, 
I'm going to pass on that wonderful invitation. But it's not okay to subsequently say, I'm hungry when you passed on the big meal. So, we resist because we don't understand that there's a serious alternative. But I think mostly we resist because of indifference. That tepid kind of faith that doesn't push desire and will right in front of us. That what we choose, what we think about faith isn't immediate for some reason. It's not right now. It's not important. So, some gold cup gains our attention and we reach for it. And in of itself, a fine enough thing, but not the thing we need. So, it's not about hostile intentions toward the king and his message. It's just indifference. So, the story moves and the king is aroused. His wrath is aroused by these that would reject the invitation. The text says that some of those that he sent to the people were ignored and seized. Others were beaten and killed. Symbolically, I hope you appreciate that in the story, the sense of the parable, those servants that he sent that were beaten and killed were the prophets sent to these same Hebrews through the generations. But notice in the story that sure, the king is angry with the people who rejected the invitation, but he is so furious with those who roughed up his servants that he sent his army to destroy them. So it seems that the king, God, can deal with personal rejection much easier than he can deal with the mistreatment of his servants. So, the story builds a little farther and now there's a second wave of invitations. And the second wave comes after this army comes to destroy those that are left. Hear me say, that the army didn't come to inflict punishment for rejecting the invitation. That's its own punishment. To reject the greatest celebration ever. Self-inflicted punishment. He sent the army to warn those who are about to get the next invitation. To pay attention to the servants. This is important. And so, he send out the next wave. Servants are told to go into the highways and invite everybody you can find. Good and bad. Jew and Gentile. And so the servants do that. All good hosts cast a pretty wide net, right? Jesus most of all. But hear me say also that in the parable, the celebration, the big feast for the wedding remains an invitation-only event. Not doors thrown open and everybody comes. Invitation only event. So, what do you make of the requirement to wear a wedding garment? 
I think that's very interesting. There's scads and scads of commentators out there who will opine endlessly on the concept that at the time of the writing of Matthew, when Jesus physically walked the earth, it was very, very common practice at celebrations like that, particularly at a wedding for the host celebrating family to generate and issue a special garment of some kind. The nearest thing I know to think of is like a souvenir that we would use in our culture today. Something that's very important to wear. And it's a serious insult to the host family not to wear it. And those same commentators will also say that because this is the king we're talking about hosting this celebration, not just some average rank-and-file individual member of the Hebrew family, but the king, that this particular document would be the best of the best. Something very rare and special. Think expensive even. And probably made as white of cloth as it was possible to make at that time. So that it would stand out. So that it would be very visible and representative of a celebration. So, it's probably a dated sort of tradition for us. But I think we still elevate the idea of wearing white. We assign significance to that in some special way. A higher calling of intentions or compassion or something. Think wearing white to weddings. Think doctors and nurses and other healers that wear white coats. Think white as in the raiment of angels. Scripture is full of symbolic references to white. In particular, the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible, is full of symbolic white suggesting holiness, power and might, completion, finality, all kinds of references to that kind of white. And even in the Gospels, Jesus' face and His clothes are turned white at the event we call the Transfiguration. So again, white appears and it's common in that kind of symbolism. Today's fun trivia, and this is all you'll get for this, today's fun trivia, did you know that the English word candidate, as in candidate for office, comes from the Latin term candidatus, literally translated, clothed in white? It seems that at the time, poor old Chuck back here about choked on himself thinking about that. This is going to get worse for you, buddy. Back in the time Matthew was writing, it was apparently common through the Roman world, the power of Rome across the world at that time, that candidates for all kinds of office would wear white. Get this, this is the reasoning behind that, to symbolize moral authority and clarity of thought. How about that? But I'm sure all of you have noticed that today it's much more common for a candidate to be dressed in a black suit or a black dress. So I'm going to let you work on the symbolism there and whatever you can get out of that. Just deal with it. So anyway, the king is meandering among his guests at the celebration, mingling like we do, and he notices someone who doesn't have the robe on. And he questions him about that. 
Friend, where is your robe? How is it you don't have a robe? And the man is speechless before the king, unable to account for his behavior, unable to account for the decision not to wear the robe. And as a result, this sounds very, very harsh, but as a result, the man is tied and bound, and cast away from the celebration into torment. So, for those who think that Jesus always tells a story that ends happily for all the participants, I offer this one. The parable properly considered is not for sissies. And I think there's some harsh life lessons in the parable for us. The first I will offer is this. Expect to account for your behavior and your decisions one day. There will be an accounting. The parable makes that clear. That the interloper here was speechless before the king is not nearly as important as the fact that there is, from the king's perspective, nothing he could have said to justify his decision. Freely offered robe rejected. Our culture teaches that you can talk your way out of anything. But the parable suggests that actions matter more and have serious consequences. Second, I would suggest that you notice that the king was not unhappy with the servants for inviting a guy like that to the celebration. In fact, they were asked to invite everybody you can find, Jew and Gentile, reputable or not, all other descriptors you can think of, invite them. That's our calling too. Invite everybody. The judgment to withhold an invitation to the kingdom is way, way, way above my pay grade and yours. Third, I would suggest you pay attention to the concept that prayerful, kingdom-oriented desire wears on your life like a white robe. It is obvious to most. It is obvious to the king at the celebration from across the room, as is its absence. And I think that suggests that there's no sense expecting to blend into a crowd that it makes seem like everybody's in. In fact, I think it's a warning about being a hypocrite about making just enough effort to appear to be in the church instead of of the church. A self-limiting judgment on its own. Choose to be in all the way or not, but it comes with its own penalty. A judgment that we make and apply to ourselves. And finally, I'm not sure that, that this it's taught by the parable directly, but it's something I get from it, so I'm going to offer it to you. I think the parable suggests that we probably need to do more than passively accept this robe. I think our calling is to actively claim it. Yes, thanks, I really want that kind of claiming it. Perhaps it's suggestive of baptism, as in putting on Christ, as the Apostle Paul writes a few times. But I think it's really a little bit more about 
bending our will to that of the host, recognizing grace and gratefully accepting it. Maybe another analogy is being clothed in righteousness. But I think that flowery language, wonderful imagery aside, hides what's really in there. I think that there's no reason for us to expect that we should be invited to and happy in the fellowship of the kingdom just as we are and always have been. I think we have to expect that we've got to be changed in some fundamental way in order to be happy and fit in there. And so, let me wrap up with this thought. Chris, if you and Ben want to start back this way. I'm going to offer you a quote taken from C.S. Lewis here in just a minute. I hope you recognize C.S. Lewis's name. This particular quote comes from his book called Mere Christianity. It was written in 1952. So a long time ago, as we think of it. C.S. Lewis may be a name you recognize from some other sources. Maybe the Chronicles of Narnia or the Screwtape Letters. I commend those things to your reading if you haven't looked at them. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a self-described Celtic pagan and marginal atheist at one time in his life, but some experiences in the trenches of Europe in World War I and some people he met shortly thereafter changed his view. And he changed from being that kind of person to perhaps among the most voluminous speakers and writers of the apologetic Christian faith, defenders of the faith. And Mere Christianity, the book, was taken from the uh, airwaves from some uh, sort of fireside chats that were offered by the BBC during the Blitz, the bombing of London. And they were about maintaining faith when things were so dark. And so, I think this particular statement I'm about to read for you is among the most concise, for me, statements of what it means to actively claim that robe, to actively seek the change that Jesus is talking about in the parable. So if you would, listen to this and and, and hear it. Make no mistake, Jesus says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, if you choose me, understand that I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cause you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my Father can say without reservation that He is well pleased with you as He said He is well pleased with me. This I can and will do, but I will not do anything less. If you choose me, choose to accept the robe. Choose to claim the required change. Choose to allow God to make you into the person He meant you to be. 
I pray that we would choose wisely. Peace be among you. And amen. Thank you each so very much for your gracious acceptance of me. We'll be back next week and we look forward to that. You know, Scripture itself tells us not to change the words of Scripture. But it does invite us to consider how we consider them. And so I'm going to recall to your mind verse 14 of what we read today. The last verse we read where it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. In light of what we've said this morning, maybe we could think of that this week as, Many are called, but few have chosen. Few have chosen wisely. So my challenge for you this week is to consider those opportunities that come your way to choose wisely and become the people God meant you to be. Now receive the benediction. May the most excellent grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit go with each of you into the next few minutes, the next few days, and to forever and give you peace. And all God's children said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, and remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.